that all of us here today know something about sacrifice, and I further believe that all of us here today probably have a good deal more to learn about it. At least I would say that's true for myself. Sacrifice is defined in two ways if you check it in a dictionary. It's the act of offering something, frequently the life of an animal or a person, in order to propitiate a deity. And it's the act of giving up or doing without something valued for the sake of something more important. And those two definitions seem to fit well with the two categories of sacrifice under Judaism, sacrifices of reconciliation and sacrifices of consecration. But neither definition seems to fit well with joy. Thousands and thousands of animals were sacrificed under the Mosaic Covenant, sometimes thousands in a single day, but I doubt if any of those animals enjoyed it very much. Neither does the idea of giving up or doing without things we value sound very pleasurable. But uh, I think there are, is a joy in sacrifice, and we're going to try to see that a bit. I'd like first to uh, look at the category, what sacrifices does God ask for today? And how does joy come into the picture? We'll look at that as we go through it a bit. You may turn to Romans chapter 12, familiar verse here I'd like to catch. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the first sacrifice we'd look at this morning is the big one. And that's ourselves. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The sacrifice of ourselves, that's the big one. Present your bodies, he says, a living sacrifice on the altar, just as completely offered as if our throats were cut, and the life was pouring out of us. Nothing left for ourselves, completely given to God, nothing reserved, absolutely surrendered to His purposes, perfectly submitted to God's will. That is the Christian commitment. These are the only terms that Jesus offers to those who would follow Him. He offers no other. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. There go our desires, our plans. Take up his cross daily. There we go to the death and follow me. It's much easier to give our things than it is to give ourselves. It reminds me of the imaginary conversation between the hog and the hen on the subject, how can we help the poor? And the hen said, I know, we can give them a breakfast of ham and eggs. And the hog said, well, for you that would be only a contribution. For me that would mean a total commitment. Well, which is it for us, the contribution or the total commitment? With a contribution we give of our things, with a commitment we give ourselves, you could say the hen was picturing herself making a sacrifice, but the hog would be the sacrifice. Well, to be a living sacrifice, 
means to give ourselves as completely and irrevocably as a hog does to provide ham. That's a living sacrifice, a total commitment. One who has given himself to God as a living sacrifice has a martyr's commitment. He's ready to die for God at any time. But God, while he values martyrs, does not really just want a lot of martyrs. He wants some use out of us here and now in this world. He reminds me of Brother Ivan Steinhauer, who died a long time ago, but he used to say, do you ever wonder why God doesn't take us up through the ceiling the minute we make a commitment to him? Well, the reason is he has something for us to do. Yes, he's not looking for people just to leave the earth. Martyrs are fine, wonderful in fact, but you can't send them to other countries. You can't use them to teach school. You can't use them to minister to the needy. So for these purposes, God needs living sacrifices, not dead ones. People with a martyr's commitment who have not yet died a martyr's death. People who have already given their lives, signed them over, and therefore don't fear losing them. And that reminds me of the missionary James Calvert, who was going to one of the cannibal islands years ago. And when the ship captain learned that he was getting off at this island to stay, he said, don't do that. These these people are cannibals. You end up in the cooking pot. And, and James gave a magnificent reply. He said, we died before we came here. He had a martyr's commitment, a living sacrifice. The living sacrifice will do anything God asks, go anywhere God directs, say anything God tells him to say, no matter how dangerous, for he has in effect died already. And therefore death holds no terror to him because he is dead. He has a martyr's commitment. Well, where does joy fit into this picture? Any commitment less than the absolute surrender of the living sacrifice will produce a divided heart. Think about it. Any commitment less than the absolute surrender of the living sacrifice will produce a divided heart. The half-committed want God, and they also want their own way. They want to be part of the church, the kingdom of God, and they want to be part of the world too. And so they straddle the fence and try to keep one foot in the kingdom of God and, and uh, reserve their options, you know. This, produces, this straddling produces an impossible stretch and sets up an unbearable tension in the soul. So many things they have to do, but they don't really want to do them. To find rest of heart, we have to have a single purpose, a single focus, and that focus must be to do the will of God. That brings rest if that's our single focus. The songwriter captured it well in that familiar song we often sing at baptisms, um, Oh Happy Day. He says, now rest my long divided heart, fixed on this blissful center, rest. See, only when you're fixed on the blissful center, the one thing that counts, can you really rest. Well, 100% submission to God 
seems to be a losing proposition, but actually it brings rest and delight and joy. Delight. Like a songwriter said again, in blessed assurance, perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. It's the only way to be happy. Or the next stanza, perfect submission, perfect delight. There's where the delight is. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. As we daily take up the cross, laying down our wills, putting ourselves at his disposal, he works in us both to will and to do of his pleasure, as Philippians says. At first, it's all, may thy will be done, not mine. But as he works in us to will his pleasure, we find that more and more it becomes his will and ours are one. May thy will, not mine, be done. May thy will and mine be one. And finally, when he takes us into his presence eternally, our wills are completely merged with his. And in that perfect submission, we find perfect freedom. It's the only way. The tyranny of the have to is forever banished and we live forever in the freedom of the want to. That's joy. That's where it is. And we can experience that at least to a degree here, even in our sacrifices. Well, the second sacrifice I'd like to look at, giving money and material goods. Hebrews 13, 16, to do good and for communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And then, uh, oh, Philippians 4, 18, I have all and abound, he says, Paul says, I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which are sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Impressive words. I got this money from you, this gift from you, and, and, and God was happy with it. It smelled good to him. It's like incense in his nostrils. Well, when Paul wrote those words, he was imprisoned at Rome, but he was not languishing in an unhealthy dungeon. Acts says he lived in his own hired house with an armed guard, and probably this hired house was made possible by the Philippian church. He didn't have to be in a dungeon, in a prison, because they gave him money to rent a house and maybe to hire a guard too. I'm not sure how it was. And here, here he commends the Philippians for their financial support, saying it's a sacrifice acceptable and well-pleasing to God, smelling like incense. It's interesting that money misused is filthy lucre. But money offered to God is an odor of a sweet smell. Filthy lucre. I think sometimes money's like manure. It does a lot of good if you use it the right way, and it, but it sure stinks when you hoard it. There's nothing you really want. We, uh, we tend to value money pretty highly. This may be one reason why school teachers are hard to find at times, because school te teaching tends to be low on the pay scale. But money can do a lot of good when it's given to the Lord. 
It can spread the gospel. It can support missionaries. It can assist preachers. It can alleviate suffering by paying medical expenses. It can feed the hungry. It can clothe the naked. It can instruct the ignorant and improve their quality of life. It can educate the young to make them useful members of the human race. It does a lot of good when it's given. What good does money hoarded do? Nothing. There are two attitudes regarding money. There's the the giver has the sheep mentality. The hoarder has the hog mentality. The giver does some good while he's alive, like the sheep. He, He gives his wool, you know, and can warm people up and give them clothes to wear. But a hog, he's good for nothing while he's alive. You can't ride him like the horse. You can't use him to pull a cart like the ox. He doesn't provide clothing like the sheep. He won't provide milk like the cow. He won't guard the house like a dog. He's good only after he's dead. And so a hoarder just like a hog does no good with his riches while he lives. But when he's dead, well, then you can do something with him. Then he does some good. Two mentalities, the sheep mentality, the hog mentality. Today, I think the problem is not so much the hoarding mentality, so much as spending selfishly on ourselves. That's more the trouble. We have money to live in plush houses and to pave driveways and to landscape the grounds and drive a late model, semi-luxury model car but our schools might struggle for funds, at least ours do sometimes. And we can't afford to start new mission outreaches, or at least we talk like we can. When in our mission board, uh, the question comes up, if we really can support an outreach in this new country financially, one of, our, uh, one of the mission board members is an accountant, and he always says, we can do it. How does he know? He always says we can do it. He says, there's a lot of money out there. Well, yeah, what's it being used for? The question is not how much of my money I will give to God. The question is how much of his money I will keep for myself. That's the question. Give as you would to the master if you met his searching look. Give as you would of your substance if his hand the offering took. If he saw, and you were handing it directly to him, because in a sense we are. Well, where does joy come into that picture? Well, since when are misers happy? Since when are hoarders happy? Generosity is joyous. You return to First Chronicles 29. I'd just like to notice the joy here that was associated with giving. This was when David was collecting resources for the building of the temple. And it says... First Chronicles 29, David is talking to the people, to the congregation, and in verse 5 he says, he, he goes over and, and says what he has prepared and what he's given, giving and so forth, and, uh, and he says in verse 2, I have prepared with all my might for the house of my God. I've been doing this and I've given all these things. And verse three, he gives a list of what he's given. And 
And verse four, and then in verse five, the last part, he says, who then is willing to consecrate his service this day unto the Lord? And that word consecrate his service means literally to fill the hand, to dig in and give by the handfuls. And, and the people responded willingly. And verse six says they offered willingly and gave and it gives a list of, uh, I, I did, some, did some converting of figures, uh, measures, and it turns out they, they, they came up with 188 tons of gold. I, that's what it says. I mean, it's amazing. But, and 375 tons of silver and 675 tons of brass and 3,750 tons of iron be millions and billions of dollars today of precious metals plus the, the brass and iron, which are more structural. They were worth more then, I suppose. Plus precious stones, seven and eight, tells us about the stones that they came up with. And, and David was happy because the people had responded to his appeal and God was happy because he loves cheerful givers. And verse 9 tells us the people were happy too. Then the people rejoiced for that they offered willingly. Because, they off, because with perfect heart, they offered willingly to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced with great joy. Why? Well, giving willingly and generously makes a person feel good about the cause, about God, and about himself. Generosity marks largeness of soul, and stinginess makes a person feel narrow and cramped in spirit and vaguely ashamed. And we ought to feel that way sometimes. Well, the third sacrifice that we give to God is time and energy. Paul's a good example of one who sacrificed time and energy. Philippians 2, I'd like to just notice a couple of verses there. Philippians 2, verses 16 through 18, talks about his own sacrifice. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Look how they're passing joy around there. But Paul says, I'm offered. I, I, and to offer here, the, the Greek meaning would be to pour out as a libation, to devote one's life or blood as a sacrifice. So he's poured out, he's saying. And, and Paul was, I mean... Paul poured out sweat in years of traveling and preaching and organizing and debating and, and writing long letters like this one. Uh, he poured himself out and he poured out tears as he faced hostile antagonists and comrades who proved unfaithful and, and the, the struggling first generation Christians of his day. He says, uh, I, many walk of whom I have told you weep often and now tell you even weeping. And he, he shed a lot of tears. He poured out tears and, and he poured out his blood as he endured lashings and finally his beheading. He was poured out. 
blood, sweat, and tears. And yet, what's so obvious is his joy. He just seems to be so happy about this, despite the fact that he's sitting there in prison and enduring all this stuff. And, uh, and, and the truth is that the really sad people are those who are all wrapped up in themselves. Not the Pauls who are pouring themselves out for God and their fellow man. They aren't the sad people. The people who are all wrapped up in themselves. Uh, Paul says something like that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15. He says here, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Spend and be spent. I thought about that. To spend, I suppose, I would take to mean the times that he chose to sacrifice himself of his own volition. He spent his time. He spent his energy. Be spent seems a little different. Maybe that's the times that that other people chose to spend him, to sacrifice his time and energy. And to me, that's a little harder, much harder. I don't mind giving away something freely. I can even enjoy that. But when somebody else takes something from me freely, that's a different story. That doesn't feel the same. Whether it's things or time or whether it's energy. But Paul says either way, whether I spend or whether I am spent, that's okay. No, he doesn't say that. He makes it stronger. He says, I'll gladly do that. No, that's not good enough. He makes it stronger than that. I will very gladly do it. And that's not strong enough. He makes it stronger still. I will very gladly do it even if I don't get any credit for it. Even though the more I love you, the less I'm loved. I mean, after all, if I'm going to spend myself and be spent by others, I'd at least like a little recognition or appreciation. But no, with Paul, the more he offered, the less they thought of him. The more he loved them, the less they loved, the less they loved him, it says. But he says, I'll do it anyway. And I'll keep on doing it. That's sacrifice. That's sacrifice. You see, if we insist on getting something back, even if it's only appreciation or love, then it's no longer pure sacrifice because we're getting something of value in return. This is a very high standard, but it's the Christian standard to give without getting anything back to love without being loved, to suffer without being admired or even pitied, to serve without being recognized or even appreciated. This is sacrifice. And even every parent, I think, knows something of this, and every school teacher probably a little, every board member, every minister, not very much maybe, but something. We cannot give like this without experiencing emotional bankruptcy or burnout or depression unless we're connected to the lifeline and it keeps flowing in and we need to be connected.
Well, I'd like to think a little bit yet about the rewards of sacrifice. And I'd like to look a little, I look at a little story in the Bible about two men who met one day. The one knew sacrifice inside out. The other was quite religious, but he didn't know much about sacrifice. Probably a lot like most of us. And they had a discussion about life and what gives it meaning and the need for sacrifice. And that's found in Mark 10. Mark 10, 17 to 22. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Of course, Jesus is the man who knew all about sacrifice. He had virtually nothing of what makes life pleasant and comfortable. He had very little ease, no fun, toys. He gave up the glories and pleasures of heaven to come to earth to be the sacrificial lamb of God. On the earth, he did without the pleasures of marriage and family. He did without the satisfaction of owning property. He seemingly owned only the clothes on his back. He owned no house, no real estate, no cattle, no business, no cart or horse, not even a donkey. He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but I have no place to lay my head. He slept out of doors or in borrowed beds of friends or supporters. The songwriter sang about how he borrowed beds and rooms and the ass and so forth. Jesus sacrificed his time so much that it, the scripture says he hardly had any free time even to eat or drink. He sacrificed his privacy. People thronged him. The crowds thronged him, constantly violating his personal space, bumping into him, uh, pulling on his clothing. And finally, he made the supreme sacrifice, giving his life and blood for the sins of the world. He knew all about sacrifice. That other man was quite religious, but knew little about sacrifice. Mark tells us he was rich. Matthew tells us he was young. And Luke tells us he was a ruler. So we often call him the rich young ruler. An able young man, full of potential. He was religious. He was devout. He kept the law. But he was vaguely troubled. He wanted something more. And that's the way we feel sometimes, or at least I do, there's something a little missing yet. And he was eager to find the answer for his need. And he came running. He was eager. And he gave Jesus his rightful place. He knelt when he came and he said, good master. He called him the right name. 
And he didn't waste time in small talk. He was eager here. He zeroed right in on the heart of the matter with the question, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? It's a good question. Ask sincerely, I believe, and ask of the right person. Seems to me that Jesus tested this young man with a stock answer, probably the same answer he had been told many times by Jewish religious leaders, obey the commandments. Ten commandments, you heard of them, right? And this answer did not satisfy him. He said, I've been doing all these things from my youth. Matthew says, he added, what lack I yet? He was honest too. He admitted his lack. And then Jesus, it seems, took a second look at him. Mark says, then Jesus beholding him. We saw him before. But after this answer, Jesus took another look at him, beheld him more earnestly, maybe. And, and then it says he loved him. It, the Bible only says of five people that Jesus loved them. Only five. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, the Apostle John, and this young man. Now, he loved all men, but as far as saying it specifically, it's only those five. And because he loved this young man, Jesus leveled with him. He said, one thing thou lackest, go, give away your possessions, and come and follow me. And Luke says, and, and, then, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And this man was bitterly disappointed. He said, I can't do that. Why did Jesus have to put his finger on the one thing I can't do? And yet that's what Jesus always does. Because that one thing that we are not willing to sacrifice for him is the one thing that keeps us out of heaven. That's the one thing that isn't committed, that's reserved for ourselves. Sacrifice. Jesus lived it perfectly. The rich young ruler refused it. Now, joy. Who had it? Jesus or the young man? Well, it says, the young man went away sad and grieved in sorrow and distress. Jesus, the one who reserved nothing for himself, was the one who had the joy. And Peter seemingly mauled over this exchange for a time, and then he asked Jesus a question there in verse 28. And, um, I shouldn't have closed my Bible. He asked Jesus a question in verse 28. He says, Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And one of the other gospels says that he added, What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said, answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. Rewards for sacrifice. Future blessings, eternal rewards, thrones, crowns, relationships, friends, brothers and sisters, a hundred times God is not a stingy giver. 
He will be debtor to no one. If we sacrifice for him, he will reward us. And he always sees to us, to it, that we always receive more than we give. But think now, just evaluate a little bit. If Jesus' words are true, and of course they are, how can we even speak of sacrifice? David Livingstone, who spent most of his life, who spent his life exploring and evangelizing Africa in the early days, said, I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. We ought not talk of sacrifice, he said, when we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. I'm inclined to agree with Livingstone. You think about it. Is real sacrifice possible? Three considerations. Number one, everything we have, we have received. Is it sacrifice to give what you've been given? Number two, we owe ourselves to God. He made us in the first place. He bought us back with his blood. We are debtors to him. Is it sacrifice to make an inadequate repayment on a debt? Is that sacrifice? And number three, whatever we give, Jesus has promised to re reward a hundredfold. If I'm thinking right, that is a 9,900% return on our investment. Is that, is that a sacrifice or is it an extremely lucrative investment? <laughs> you know, think about that. Well, a few concluding thoughts yet. Two, two verses on the relationship of joy and sacrifice. Acts 20, verse 35, it is bitter, better to give than to receive. And that tells us that a holy joy attends the act of sacrifice. It is better to give than to receive. And then 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loveth a cheerful giver. And that tells us, tells me that God enjoys seeing us enjoying giving. Is it all right to say that that way? God enjoys seeing us enjoying giving. So there you have a triangle of joy. We enjoy giving to others. The receiver of our gifts enjoys receiving them. And God enjoys seeing us enjoy giving. That's a win-win-win situation. The recipient gets the pleasure of receiving. We get the greater pleasure of giving, and God gets pleasure in both. So what does he do? He gives us more to give. So we can enjoy, experience more joy in giving, and he can have the joy of seeing our cheerful giving. And that blessed scenario is replayed over and over again. The economists say that the secret of a booming economy is keeping the money circulating. It seems to me that the secret of booming joy is keeping our resources circulating. Brings joy all around. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is only reasonable. Every day, tell the Lord, I'm yours. 
Take me. All I have is thine, all I am. I am not my own. My money is God's. My house is God's. My business, my job, my family is God's. This day is his. My muscles are God's. My lips are his. My hands are his. My feet are his. Send me where you want me to go. My heart is God's. My mind too. Work your work with my hands today. Think your thoughts with my mind today. Speak your words with my lips today. Walk with my feet and love with my heart. There's where the joy is.